Kia ora, everyone, and welcome to The Word, or Kupu, today on the 2nd of November, 2021, with me, your host, Christopher Von Roy. Thanks for joining us for episode number eight today with the absolutely spectacular Julia Vari. Now, this talk goes on for quite a while, and for good reason. Julia is just filled to the brim with phenomenal life stories and... Yeah, it was often just took my breath away and I was left lost for words, which is quite a rare occasion for me. Um, Julia runs her own business, Vary Insurance. Uh, she used to be a police officer and yeah, all around amazing human being. She tells us about her ancestors who lived in the Kate Shepherd house down in Christchurch. Her great grandfather was the the mayor of Christchurch, and yeah, it's just amazing stories, and it was such a delight to talk to Julia, and she's promised already to come back on the podcast, so stick around for the full, I don't know what it is, two hours and something, because yeah, there are some gems in there, and you are definitely going to be entertained, and you'll laugh like we did, so without further ado, let's welcome Julia to the podcast. Hi, Julia. Can you hear me? Hey, I can. How are you? Uh, good, good. And you? I'm good. This is weird because there's no face. It's All right. I was gonna, I was gonna <laughs> pre-warn you that there's gonna be no face, but <laughs> primarily because I've got a really bad sunburn at the moment, and like my, my face is flaking. I look like I've got the plague. So. Whoa! Where did you go to get so? Violent? Oh, it was. I had sun cream on. It was. We played a, a sort of charity football game last week and it was in Motueka and it was midday obviously and it's just my forehead and my nose so just a big warning out to people put some it was factor 20 I put on I should have put 50 on silly but yeah I've never had it this bad like literally where you can't fall asleep at night because it's itching so bad so no. that was a lesson for me wow. again Maybe it was just because we've been inside so much this year. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's probably what it is. There was no, um, face, no face immunity. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're sitting, sitting in front of your UV light. No, but it's all good. Um, where are you at the moment, Julia? Are you in the Waikato? Yes. So we are, I think, look, to be fair, I've actually lost track of how long we've been um, indoors nowhere near Auckland but I think we might be like week three-ish of lockdown yeah um, is it a is it a severe one lockdown or is it the one kind of a loose where you can still meet up outside and uh, they've just changed the rules that we can meet up outside but I mean what okay that, that doesn't send what my that children mean? to school <laughs> yeah, I mean I think we've been relatively living in bliss here in the South Island like I, we when we had this it was a football tournament we had last week we were like oh my god we are so lucky like we're probably the only area in New Zealand allowed to do organized sports and that's probably coming to an end now as well with Christchurch and yeah Blenheim having cases so yeah I guess start like the stars yeah well, yeah and it's just inevitable so you just got to go hard while you can right and exactly right, exactly right. It's, though. it's a bizarre and meeting people that have had covid like i've never had that either and then at this tournament there were people that yeah they'd recovered and 
Wow. Um, yeah, so that was an eye-opener. It's all, yeah, pretty strange. I mean, a lot of people listening to this are actually overseas, like a lot of my sort of friends and ex-colleagues that are in Europe and in America that are going through obviously completely different transitions at the moment. They've kind of been where we are heading at the moment, I think, as a country. So it's probably quite interesting for them to be like, oh, yeah, you guys, New Zealand is about to experience the Delta wave. Which yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I've, it's been a really interesting time just watching, um, you know, this change just in social behavior, I guess, you know, oh, yeah. people are really frustrated. But I think probably the key message that I've seen is how, um, you know, like, well, I guess like alarming for me is the division, like, and, and yeah. I think people are really picking up on that now is how intense that's become. And, yeah. and more so almost like scarier than the virus itself. Oh, how, of course, you're, you've hit a real point there, Julia. Like I was always thinking like, could anyone be or anything be more divisive than Donald Trump? And like suddenly, and then we get this and then it's not only COVID, but then it's like the divide and is it happening? Is it not happening? And then these the goalposts keep moving and then, oh, but the death rate isn't so high. It's like the flu. And then it's like, the vaccine is dangerous and then you know and then these like goalposts keep moving further and further apart whereas the people what they're missing is the science community's done us a massive favor in this vaccine i mean not to you know stride one way or the other but if you go into the actual background of how this vaccine was developed and it's the first cross-border platformed medicine that the world has created together and yeah i recently did a i did a post on facebook like so i'm obviously decidedly pro vaccine i've got a background in immunology and like i've worked on vaccine development myself and i recently did a post about how the main concern people have the sort of sane anti-vaxxers that's what i call them like the fence sitters that are like rational and not you know going down the cuckoo conspiracy train they say there's not enough long-term safety data with this vaccine. And I made a post saying that's not actually the point because with vaccines, there is no long-term danger. The danger is in the short term. That's why you sit there for 15 minutes after you've gotten it. And every minute that follows, you're, the danger of developing a side effect becomes more and more negligible to the point where after two weeks, um, there's no vaccine left in your body. And what's been left is your primed immune system that's ready to, you know, and this is something that people don't realize. They think, oh, this vaccine is going to stay in my body for a year. And then after a year, something's going to happen. And that's not entirely correct. The, that's more antibiotics or aspirin or things that you take over a prolonged period of time. They can build up in the body and cause long-term mm. damage. Yeah. Mm. So... That's so I posted this and then I like I've had my friends list has just dropped. I mean, I live in Golden Bay, which is already quite a fringe area where I think we've probably got the lowest vaccination rate in New Zealand. Like a lot of sort of alternative thinkers and hippie people live here and it's frustrating. And so I've just I've lost probably about 50 friends. Just you see wow. it drop where people just don't want to read anymore. They're like, oh, no, that's not, 
that's not something I want to read. I want to stay in my own little. And I think that is the big danger, Julia, is the, the not being open to new ideas. Like I'm open to listening to people's concerns, but I'm like, <laughs> these are highly qualified academic professionals, massive multi-trillion dollar enterprises putting this out to help people. It's not to hurt people or not to end, but to get that through, I mean, I have no, yeah. And I feel so, I, so much empathy for the police at the moment. And which obviously you've got that background, which we can go into as well, but like what they had to deal with yesterday or two days ago, was it yesterday when the people were trying to get to Waitangi? Yeah, I haven't lo- I haven't read too much. I've oh, been kind of like actively avoiding, well, actively it. avoiding it, but um, I, I yeah. hear what I need to hear in terms yeah. of functioning. Yeah. And then, yeah, but this is like a convoy of cars trying to get through Auckland, like oh, you know, wow. 60 cars. I know. So this is like where yeah, the, the, the mental thing starts turning out into something that's happening in yeah. real life, not just oh. in our heads anymore. And um. And this is what I'm saying. So areas like Golden Bay, these fringe areas where we're actually completely isolated. So we're very, very lucky. But if it comes here, Delta, we have got, we've got nothing. We don't have an ICU bed. We don't have, we've got a medical center, but it's not a hospital. Mm -hmm. We've got one helicopter that services the area that can take one patient over to Nelson Hospital, who also only has like, I think 11 ICU beds. So it's like, I'm trying to get it through to people like, listen, you've got to understand that we have had a luxury at the moment this last year. And if it shit hits the fan in Golden Bay, like we would be one of those communities where, yeah, low vaccine uptake, high percentage of old people that live here. And so, yeah, that's something where obviously you can't, I mean, did you get psychological training when you were in police and how to persuade people like this, like (laughs) tactics and how to get people to see the light? I mean, you, was that a part of your training? No, not really. (laughs) And I think it's a real journey, like um, policing, you know, there's a lot of regret to a degree. I mean, you always have these parts of your life that you're like, I probably could have handled that better, you know, but yeah. you, when I joined, I didn't, I, I didn't have a great leadership team or kind of mentor at the start in the early stages of my career. So I, yeah. when I graduated police college and personally, I'd never interacted with a police officer before because I was raised pretty straight edge. So yeah. I, I had no idea really what was expected of me and how I was supposed to behave or interact because I was only 20, 20 21 when I joined. So I had very wow. life experience to, to a degree. So, yeah. um, and then when I, the station that I was posted to the, my acting sergeant at the time had like four or five months more experience than I did. (laughs) Yeah. So pretty new. Like a bacteria, like, uh, you know, a, one of those Petri dishes for growing, growing a really bad disease. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. And so where was that station, Julia? Um, that was, that was one in Auckland and yeah. And, um, so anyway, so I didn't really figure things out until, ooh, maybe like 
maybe three years in where I, yeah. I went down and um, for the Christchurch earthquakes in 2011. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so I was part, because it was such a national um, effort. So we had police from all over coming into Christchurch to help out with um, PR stuff and yeah. community reassurance and, you know, working in the red zone and stuff for recoveries and, making sure that people weren't breaching and going into the red zone or climbing in and stealing stuff and blah, blah, yeah. blah. And anyway, so I was partnered, I flew down from Auckland and I was partnered up for a significant portion of my time down there with um, another constable who upon, I would love to reach out to him again because I don't think he realized, realized the positive impact he's had. A, firstly on oh. my career, but then secondly, also, in terms of how to communicate properly with people. And so yeah. um, Bruce, Constable Bruce McLean was his name. And he was from, yeah. I think he had spent the, from memory, the first part of his, I think he'd had 11 years by that stage when I'd met him. And he started in Dunedin and then had moved to Cromwell and Wanaka and was policing there. So kind of small town yeah. policing. And I got in the car and I was from the big city. And yeah. then all of a sudden, I like was being exposed to this different style of policing where he actually listened and had a good yarn to people, you know, like, amazing. We, like we stopped some guy, some dude that was on a stolen push bike and yeah. the way that Bruce was able to communicate with him, like my head almost fell off my body. I was like, ah, oh, this uh, is how you do it. Wow. And I, that was a real career changing point for me because I was like, I've been doing this all wrong. Like, this is totally not effective. Like yelling and screaming and acting like a dick um, yeah. or, or, or authoritative or, um, you know, being a female with blonde hair. Um, yeah. You know, I kind of thought maybe I need to like act harder than I really am. But sometimes actually being your authentic self um, is actually far yeah, yeah, way more beneficial. It's so much more beneficial. And then you're not trying to be somebody that you think that you need to be within a role. Like actually being human is so much more relatable. So um, yeah. yeah, really everything changed from that point. A, my policing style, but moving forward, even to now, like of how I interact, um, yeah. not having these preconceived ideas of who you think that you should be within yeah. business or within society, you know, like... Um, yeah, it, it was really amazing. It was really cool, and I and Bruce, I he would have absolutely no idea that he had that impact on me oh. back then. So I would love to reconnect with him. Also, in quite a um, scary situation, like how soon after the earthquake hit did you guys get sent down there? Well, at, funny at the time um, when the crush, when the big one struck, the February earthquake, I was yeah. had been seconded to um, our North North Coms, which is a North Communications Centre, and that's um, responding to like one 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 emergency calls, yeah, um, etc. And every now, if you're, I mean, you can see it as unlucky or lucky, or you sometimes a lot of people that were not naughty or had been shafted because they, you know, they might have had like a um, you know, engaged in a police pursuit where yeah. maybe the crash had uh, there had been a crash and somebody was injured and you were being investigated for your actions or you know and it, something you might get shafted to a place like that while you're being yeah um, looked into yeah. 
Um, so it was either unlucky, you were naughty, or you were a problem child. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Um, and I, I was kind of on the, I had a pursuit that was being investigated. So just to make it clear, nothing happened to me and I wasn't at fault for that one. Yeah. But, um, yeah. And also to a degree unlucky, but I took it as one of the greatest experiences also in my career as well, because I got to experience yeah. massive events and I was on duty the day that the earthquake struck. So I was in, in the comms wow. and I just happened to be completely random because you would receive calls from all over New Zealand. So there's North North Combs um, and then Central as well, which is based in Wellington. And there's also South Combs as well, which is based in Christchurch. But if either of those call centres were overwhelmed, they would rebound up to... They divert the calls. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And so that day I'd been uh, a call just even before the earthquake. I was on on the phone to... Uh, it was like a council worker. I'm just trying to remember. It was like a council worker or somebody that um, I think if they had found somebody deceased in one of the public toilets or something and yeah. I was on the phone to them and we were sorting that out and they were based in Christchurch. And then in the middle of the phone call, all of a sudden I hear him go, holy. Oh, my God. goodness. And I heard this wow. in the background. And I was like, hello. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> hello. And then he finally picks up the phone again. He goes, I've got to go. Like, there's been this huge earthquake. And then my response wow. was like, how, what do I type in the job text here to pass it on to the dispatcher? But, of course, the dispatcher is <laughs> based in Christchurch. And then Christchurch oh my goodness. evacuated. Like, their comm center was getting evacuated at the same time. So it was insane. Like, I was on the phone to somebody on a 111 call when the earthquake struck. And then, oh my goodness, yeah, it was crazy. And then, you know, all of those phone calls back to back was all um, people that were trapped within buildings or. Oh uh, man. Yeah. And that's stuff they don't train you for. Well, they can't really train you for that. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. It's just like common sense. You just have to walk them through and be composed. Yeah. But you can't stay on the phone forever. You know, you have to no. you actually do have to hang up and take the next phone call. And yeah. I mean, what can you say? But um, I, I mean, that was probably one of the hardest days of my career because oh, yeah. the only people that I just left and then I was like, far out like are they actually going to get to somebody will they survive and then knowing that you spoke to that person on the phone and then seeing their name pop up as somebody that deceased that was deceased a few days later or something I was like holy shit probably the last person to talk to them on the phone you know like yeah um amazing yeah did you then did you then um volunteer to go down and Um, help with it yeah, so a few months later, we did like there. There was like a first uh, because I was in comms and I've seconded there for like I mean I think I got out maybe a few weeks later and I went down around April, so two months after the main quake. Um, yeah. So it was kind of like clean up. Um, yeah. Yeah, and and that was a really interesting time to be involved in. You know, I mean, they still haven't recovered. So two months directly no. after the quake was still pretty. Um, yeah, um, it would have been very fresh still. Still very fresh. Yeah. But it yeah. was an incredible experience to be a part of. And I was there for yeah. a few weeks um, on secondment. And that was, you know, one of the greatest experiences that I had being in- involved in such a massive national event. Yeah, huge. 
Yeah. And getting to meet Bruce as well, who taught you how to deal with humans in a bit yeah. more of a I guess it's it's the listening bit, which is so hard to do when you're actively feeling threatened as a police officer, right? It's that whole to kind of calm yourself, whereas you're in an, a dangerous situation that, or potentially dangerous, to then still have that patience composure. with humans yeah. and yeah, composure. Um, which I, I mean, I have read pretty much every publication on how to deal with people with anti-vax um, mindsets. And the one thing they do say is just hear them out. And the problem is, and then just slowly with rationals, you know, um, not emotional responses, try to address every single thing. But like, who has the patience to do that? You know, and especially when they start going off. And I think where you... Like I get angry and I don't like that in myself. I get just this anger building up. And I think that's, that can be quite similar to the situation that police would find themselves in with someone who's obviously breaking the law, but for whatever reason, whether they're intoxicated or whatever, they don't see that what the police is doing is a necessary, you know, that that intervention doesn't need to happen on a social level. And, and I think that anger that builds up in you because you're you are like sacrificing your life pretty much for the greater good in the community and if someone doesn't recognize that um yeah i think that it could be a very frustrating thing like you said as well like where you can necessarily dealing with the comms and not actually being able to help someone having more of like a counselor role you know like just listening and trying to give good feedback but like, how would you? Um, how did you deal with that frustration? Do you guys get to see counselors? Um, yeah, you, there, there are then? those. There are those options, but a lot of it is dealt internally. Like, you know, police. I mean, the majority. I mean, we have a, an amazing um, group of police officers in New Zealand. Like, yeah, truly, we do. You know, and there's going to be like bad eggs in every. Yeah single department or organization that you work in like yeah look at what's just happened with acc recently like what the hell like what yeah. brain explosion had to happen for you to <laughs> act like that i don't know but whatever um yeah i mean it's a it is a wonderful organization and there genuinely are wonderful people in there that are highly skilled and very good at what they do and they're doing it for the greater good but also like um, it's a they create a really wonderful family vibe in there. Um, yeah. and lots of black humor. You can laugh about it together afterwards. Yeah. Um, it's just, you know, how they had that um motto for a while with better work stories. It really is. And yeah, you can't write what happens, like you really can't. And no. sometimes, you know, there were there were times that I would just be wetting myself with laughter with some of the stuff that we would face to be like how could you explain possibly explain this to anybody else <laughs> who's not in the that's, situation that's not in it or seeing it or smelling it or, or um like, did you yeah. have to sign an nda julia when you left that you weren't ever allowed to talk oh no, about no, stuff? no so no. maybe there's a book here Oh, I so many, so many could, I mean, there are stories every single day of what the things that you've seen and the things that you've done. And likewise with, you know, nurses or doctors or ED, uh, you know, paramedics and John staff, all of that. But I mean, it's, 
Um, police is probably addresses a wider spectrum of the population in the sense you know like a nurse is confined to her hospital most of the time yeah but you yeah. guys actually go out into the community and police right so like firemen fire people don't police they just wait for a fire to happen and then they go out whereas yeah, you guys are yeah. actively in the community so you're like the eyes and the ears so police people would make the best journalists i, th- I think so yeah and they're very they're i mean once you stop being uh, once you stop being in the police you never stop either you're kind of yeah i'm still very switched on as to what's going on and very watchful without myself even know- knowing that i'm doing it so yeah um you just it's that just, gets trained into you doesn't yeah it? yeah and it never goes away either i i don't think like um, I've definitely constant vigilance. <laughs> yeah, but I've definitely emerged back into civilian life, as it were. I mean, it's been five years now, and I've definitely um, come back into the come back into so, the reality again. When so, um, your background would have been so. How did you grow up? Like, where were you born? How did you grow up? And how did you even have the inspiration to go and do this? Go to the police? Yeah. So Adam. it was really. Um, I had. I was very privileged and I and I'm first to admit that I I was because I was born into a very great family um yeah parents are like unbelievably exceptional loving Aww. well amazing people um and they're hilarious and um you know uh, I've got I'm the youngest of three so I've got an older sister and my brother's the eldest of all of us and um my parents uh, my dad was was doing quite well in a um, family photography business, which my grandfather yeah. started. So I guess oh, wow. it, it, in those times we were doing quite well, you know, and mum yeah. didn't have to work in those early days. So she was very typical at home with us, cookies, baking, all of that kind of jazz. Where was this? Julia? This is in Auckland. Uh, so, up in Auckland, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then uh, my dad... Um, in the summers where he was really, my dad was, had sailed for New Zealand previously. And so was really big into his um, boating. So he had built us like a 20, 29 foot boat, which. Um, wow. Yeah, well, he I sailed was, actively yeah. as in represented New Zealand. Yeah, dad did. Wow. Yeah. 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 And um, so very outdoorsy, really into, yeah. his, you know, fishing, fly fishing, um, being uh, mountains, um, mum was really into her scuba diving. My mum was one, the, one of the first women in the group of the first women to ever complete um, Outward Bound. Oh, wow. Amazing. Yeah. So, um, you know, that those kind of, th- that background. Um, yeah. And yeah, so in the summer, we, we tend to head off on the boat and spend like our time away from everybody, basically. Um and in the winter, we were highly engaged in the mountain and being outdoors and skiing and stuff. So, like, yeah. very, very privileged in terms of that. And that my parents were in the position to be off um, and very quite flexible with work so they could be off yeah. with us during the school holidays. Um, yeah. So, yeah, in term, and then my I was quite competitive with sport from a young age with cycling and mountain biking and um, and skiing. So yeah, I I didn't really have the opportunity, I guess, to 
be like really naughty if that makes sense you know in your teenage years my parents <laughs> the were opportunity really... funny that you word it like that they, uh, they, um, I, I was so competitive with sports that they kind of yeah. like I think it worked out quite well for them because they kind of dodged a bullet there with you know like annoying teenagers like just engaged you yeah what like, kind of skiing was it compact racing ski racing I'm um, not ski racing I didn't um it was just very social and then it wasn't until I left school because I I didn't do particularly well um at school I wasn't like an ac- academic I was definitely yeah. there to eat my lunch and like <laughs> hang out with my friends and play and do sport and yeah so by the time I got to seventh form so year 13 I was like yeah. I am not going to university absolutely <laughs> forget it no way I've had like my whole life in a schooling environment I don't want to get into debt um so yeah I, clever uh, I, I moved to Oakone and yep. I was obviously the youngest of my family, but first out of the house, which I think is pretty typical for young, the youngest yep. of all the siblings. And um, moved down. Usually turn out to be the go getters. Yeah, <laughs> or the loose ones, the scary <laughs> yeah, ones. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and yeah, I went. I moved there and uh, got qualified as a ski instructor down in Oakone. Oh, cool! Yeah, yeah, and kind of used that to have a bit of fun, freedom, meet some yeah. people, and use that qualification to go overseas and teach skiing and have some fun before I kind of figured out what I wanted to do next. Amazing! Um, Where did you go overseas? I taught in uh, at Lake Tahoe, so at a ski resort. Wow! Oh my goodness! In California. Yeah. So that was incredible. Cool. Yeah, I lived in Boulder, Colorado for like two years. So oh, nice. did you ever get to go there? I didn't, but my brother taught right. my brother taught at Keystone and, Oh yeah, amazing. Uh vale. Copper Mountain. Copper yeah. Mountain, yeah. yeah. Incredible. So my brother did wow. the thing as well. So he went and taught skiing too. So um yeah, so that was kind of it. And then after traveling around and farting around and being broke for three or four years I kind of got a bit tired of that lifestyle yeah um and came home from the states and just said to my parents I said I think I'm ready to like look at the next thing um but I still wasn't ready for university and so mum and dad and they were really pro me figuring it out they didn't want me to be forced into going to uni and getting into so lucky Julia yeah you were wow very very lucky they were like yeah just whatever you know like um I hadn't really been asking them for money I'd just been like bumming around and doing bits and bobs and in this uh, uh one summer that I did take off and didn't go overseas I had probably the best job of my entire life and I was a cycle posting delivering oh my goodness honestly it is the best job um funny julia can i just quickly interject so i was a postie here in golden bay for two years and i did not not on the bicycle it's the best job ever it was the most (laughs) fun i've ever had and i drove from like takaka out to wainui which is like at the abel tasman national park like the most beautiful along the I always said I had the nicest postal run in the whole world like I got to stop at Tata Beach and go for a swim and like it's the best job ever like anyone who ever doesn't know what to do join the New Zealand Post I know I and say. everybody it's... loves the postie like yeah exactly so pleased to see me They're like, oh, so you wouldn't have done parcels you would have just 
how did you do so we you just I, did I was letters. Like a, a cycle post so it was perfect because i was yeah. really fit and i had cycled competitively like all through school so <laughs> it's I, be the I fastest really, one I was really psychotic about like I, I was probably a bit naughty and I wouldn't take breaks. You know when you would sort your mail in the morning yeah, where you would get up and I would do my sorting, like smash it out, took my headphones, um, and like wouldn't ever take that 10 minute break like ever all the other ones like um, <laughs> you just went straight I just into smashed it. it out. And then most of the time I was finished my run by like eleven o'clock in the morning. <laughs> And did you get paid was, hourly or did you get paid per day uh, hourly you would have been paid hourly i think it was like regardless it was like from seven till two they covered you from, okay so then you got yeah 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 yeah. so whatever time that you finished i think they still paid you from memory the same amount yeah 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 so i i just went hard and smashed it out and because i was fit i just didn't stop and take a break i just kept going um and they and they did, they did tell me off for that they're like julie you must take breaks i was like yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then i just kicked back and go to the beach like in the afternoon yeah it's so and, cool getting fit on your job oh it's absolutely and i tell people like it's the nicest job ever it's the only job i've ever had that i never took home with me you know because at the end of the day you've done it you've delivered all your letters your parcels and whatever you and you just go and it's the, just the most amazing feeling of having done something and not having to think about it anymore. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. That's yeah. it. And I absolutely <laughs> loved it. And, and yeah. also- Where was that? In Auckland as well? In Auckland, yeah. So my- I, uh, What area? Um, it was St. John's and Coey and- Oh, yeah. Yeah. So a really nice area. <laughs> yeah. But quite a lot of traffic. So you would have been had to pay attention there. Um, because it was like residential the area that i did so but it was okay. hilly it was quite a hilly course my one so oh, good short, for fitness short but um hilly but i i absolutely yeah. loved it and um i've always recommended to people i'm like man if you don't know what you want to do like go be yeah. a but that was pre-safety stuff so oh it's like, it's horrible now julia actually i was there right when the whole turnover happened and now it's everything everything gets measured like i don't know why they've gone not you know what it is Juliet? there's way too many people who aren't delivering the mail working at new zealand post <laughs> just these managers resources you know human resource managers and this and that and yeah. like i just sit there they've come over to our office and i'm just like what are you guys actually doing like you're just sitting there trying to make deals and and that's why. And they're like, oh, we're going to scan this and we're going to measure exactly how long every stuff. They do GPS tracking now, oh, right? Wow. So they know how long you're spending at every house. Yeah, so it's it's taken that. We would have been the last generation, Julia, that enjoyed the sort of freedom. Like, I wouldn't be able to go for a swim anymore if I wanted to. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> like yeah, exactly. Actually, yeah, if my boss is listening, he's... Yeah, yeah, yeah our work welcome. safe would be all over that, you know. Yeah, yeah. exactly. No. So I, how did that pave into the going to for the police academy well, thingy? So, yeah, getting back on track, um, my parents were like, well, if you don't want to pay for uni and all that kind of stuff, why don't you look at options where you could join, um, like, maybe the army or something? And at that time, from what I remember, is that you could study, like, nursing... And yeah. the army would pay for you to do it or whatever. And I thought, oh, yeah, that could be um, quite good. And then yeah. the subject of the police came up. And I, like I said, I'd never interacted with a police officer before. So I had no, I was like, oh, yeah, police exist. I kind of <laughs> didn't really. I could do that. I'm fit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so a friend of mine that I had cycled with competitively through school, he was um, maybe two years in. 
So I rang him up and I said, hey, what's it like? You know, would you recommend it? And, you know, again, you could study and they would, you know, if it was going to be relevant to your um, line of work, that there was likelihood that they would contribute to it, et cetera. And so um, this was back then. And um, he said, why don't you come out for a night shift with us? And Wow, um, amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you could do that back then. I don't know if you can do ride-alongs anymore. But um, so anyway, so on a Saturday night, I think I was like, yeah, sweet as. So when do I come? He goes, come out on Saturday. I'll organize it with my sergeant. And um, Wow, big night Saturdays. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And honestly, it was the coolest, most intense shift I have ever worked out of that whole entire 10-year career. And I never experienced (laughs) a shift. (laughs) They really put on the show for you. Yeah, it was just luck, you know, like it was. Did you have to wear a uniform and everything or how did that work? No, no, no. When you went on the ride along. You just tiny dress and you just sit in the back and go to all the jobs and watch. And 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 on my first shift, on that shift, I got to see like I'd never seen a um, deceased person before. Wow. We we, went to a sudden death. We had a car chase. We had a foot chase with people that were like breaking into cars. you know, like they really put. Oh on my goodness! Program. Like yeah. all of the stuff that could happen. Yeah, yeah. So what, yeah. did you actually get out of the car and you could walk around and? Yeah, 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 yeah. So they let you experience it, and um, I finished the night shift, came home that morning. You know, we finished at seven in the morning or something. But our old night shift wow. ten to seven, and then I just said to my parents, "Holy crap! This is like." all I've ever dreamed of, you know, it's all the bills. I'm going to be highly entertained, like, um, in terms of being fit and not knowing what's going to happen every day and being nimble, adapt and, um, exciting. I'm going to be able to help people in the community, all of that kind of stuff. It fits all of the things that I felt were important values for me. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so that day I went into the recruitment office, which was at the time in Green Lane in Auckland, and started the recruiting process. And I think I was at police college four or five months later. Wow. So where's the college? Is that it's, also in Auckland? It's in um, Wellington in Porirua. Oh, so you have to go down there. And it's probably like, it's a bit like the military. You sleep on campus. and Yeah, so you live there. Yeah. Your whole life is... Um, now uh, you kind of yeah you move there live on site and i think we were there for like six months or it's like 21 six months until you get qualified yeah is it 21 weeks 20 you can't remember i can't remember it was like other four to six months um that we were there and you do all your exams and training and parade and uh yeah driving and firearms and all that kind of stuff Yeah. yeah does every police officer have to do the firearms training even if you're not gonna yeah yeah. 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 Because so you have all to learn operational. To... When you come out of police college, you are good to go. So once you've once you've graduated, then you get um, sent to whichever station that you're going to, and yeah. Um, yeah, and you're basically good to go. And you have your two year probationary period, um, where you have to like sign off modules or assignments to say that you yeah. are capable in these certain aspects of policing. And so they do psych, psych evaluations and all that. They, must um, do as they well. do that. I'm pretty sure they did that in the recruitment process to make sure that. Ah, uh, true. Beforehand. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and are then obviously people. Hey, one of my favorite films when I was growing up was Police Academy. So it's like, and that. Have you ever seen that? It's an yes, American it, comedy it, film. Yeah. It's and so, like, it, do people actually movie. fail? Well, yeah. Are there people that? Yeah. There is. So there is like a. 
So that must be quite a sad thing to go through if your friends aren't doing so well. Yeah, because you make friends there as well. Yeah, of course. Oh, and friends for life as well. You know, yeah, it's a really interesting place to be. It's like a but we sometimes well back then we described it as the bubble. So it's yeah, kind of your reality is just really police college, and it's um once you come out of the bubble, it's like whoa, we're back in the real (laughs) world. Back into the incredible. Yeah. And you kind of moved through, you did different things within the police as well, weren't you? Like, uh, yeah, so did you do the, yeah, go on. Sorry, um, yeah, so like that first two years that you're usually on like a frontline role, so uh, like public safety team, which back, back then we used to call it um, like section, which is um, or PST, where you respond to all the 111 emergency calls, uh, yeah, and a police car which you know they run shifts all the time they're on 24 7 so you would just be rostered for that or they would put you in a role like community policing um you know a slow entry point or you might go to traffic section first um or the booze bus you know where yeah you set up and a lot of those a lot of people generally like on on the booze bus when you you know you get stopped um for breath testing uh tend to be kind of in those early stages of training. Yeah, because it's Ah. a nice, slow introduction. Yeah. Um, And then they will have, uh, and then they did for a while, they did um, like a FTU. It was like a field training unit where you're partnered up with somebody that's like a qualified trainer, as it were, for new recruits that have just come out and they, and you have some jobs. Yeah. yeah, I don't. Re- I mean, I've been out for five years now, and so everything a lot has actually changed since then. So I, I could just be providing you completely inaccurate information. <laughs> <So> <laughs> All these people are going to turn up based on this interview like, going like expecting to meet friends for life, and yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. that doesn't happen to me. <laughs> it's not the way uh, it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, and then after the two years, you. Do they ask you what area, like if you want to do detective work or? Yeah, so you can yeah. go, you can go down that CIB route and. Um, What's CIB? So it's a criminal investigation branch. Oh, yeah. That's, that's the detective line. So it, again, it's pretty yeah. much exactly the same as uh, going to police college again, but you're being retrained as a detective. So you go through modules, um, do your exams and then. Well, again, this could have changed by now, but you go down to uh, back to police college for four weeks and do like an induction course down there. Um, and yeah. I heard that it's like the like hell for four weeks that it's just awful. It's cram, cram, cram. Oh, wow. Really, really hard. Um, so, yeah, it's a big it's a big dedication uh, period for you. And, and um, yeah, there's lots of exams that you have to do to get qualified and then obviously you have to sign off specific jobs or events that you've done or roles that you've played within um, an operation or an investigation and just make yeah. sure that you are capable of doing all the different roles within each investigation that occurs. That's uh, uh, Yeah, I mean, that yeah. would be a headache. Yeah, and it's hard because it's a different level of crime, right? So they're dealing with the higher um, penalties and higher offending levels. So with your frontline policing, it's more not petty. I wouldn't describe it as petty crime, but lower um, offenses. So, you know, like your basic thefts or burglaries or... um, There's not investigations that I said. So that wasn't something that interested you? Um, I did start down that track. Yes, so I did go into sort of like an investigative role where I went into a dishonesty offending squad. So we did lots of um, 
you know, like burglaries is more of a high-end crime. It's kind of like yeah. in between of like frontline policing and um, investigative work. So we were still yeah. de dealing with a lot of that, but we would often get um, brought into uh, bigger operations. Like if there was a homicide or something, we would get dragged into it because yeah. we were kind of in the in-between and they would use us for certain tasks. Like we would either go and do... Um, Oh, how do I describe? Um, yeah, like like a liaison. Yeah, like working kind of, between... yeah, more inquiries or stuff. Or you, you need more people on the ground that are a little bit more capable than say maybe those that are not. Oh, that's that's the wrong word. Not capable. Um, yeah, it's just a different role. You're a bit more qualified. Qualified and and available. Like if you're on those front lines. Oh, okay. You, yeah. You can't get pulled away from front. You know, frontline policing always needs to be on um yeah because you're responding to 111 calls but if you're in a investigation squad like i was with for burglaries the burglary has already occurred and they're yeah. there investigating it um to find yeah. out it. so we were just more available i guess um to help new zealand's it. quite unique in the sense and and like investigations would never be over whereas like i'm thinking in in europe or america like they're so large and the people can you know cross borders and leave the country and that investigations get closed but i don't think in new zealand i remember once talking my neighbor was working in the police and amazing guy and he said nah like you never get away with crime in new zealand like it's just at some point even if it's 10 20 years you'll It'll get caught back. for some yeah yeah <laughs> and i was like when i heard that i was like this is such a comforting I mean, living in New Zealand anyway, it's a, such a microcosm. And so, you know, everyone kind of knows everyone via six or less degrees. Someone. Yeah. Yeah. A, a wonderful sergeant of mine, um, he always said that. He's like, you can never get rid of your notebooks, you know, like that. You're not really saying notebook. Because <laughs> they might sometime come in handy. Yeah, because he, he had, there was so many different um examples of like something that he'd been in the police for like 25 30 years and he's like yeah i had to go and find my notebook from 20 years ago from wow do you have to hand them over when you leave julia yeah mine are sitting at the police station actually a friend of mine josh he texted me and said do you want these and i was like i'm pretty i'm thinking aren't they supposed to stay at the police station um, can you, oh my god julia can i so I do ghost writing as well. Like I write books for people that don't necessarily want to write them themselves. And usually I get their diaries. I'll write their memoirs or autobiographies. And man, I would absolutely love to get my hands on those. Is uh, there any, yeah. like, how, is there, would they ever let someone from the outside come in and read? Nah, as long as they sign? No way. They wouldn't because do that. Got, you've got like so many active, personal details. Ongoing. And sometimes are like active investigations. So like there would have What if you sign a document that says you change the names? I mean, for inspiration, it would be the most incredible insight. Oh, yeah. I mean, if, this, you could if you don't ask, you don't get I wonder it. Who, would I, who I would have to ask. I'll write to them. Yeah. Because I recently, I was writing, um, my grandfather, um, he was a, because so my mother's from New Zealand, my father's from Germany, and my mother's father was an Air Force pilot in the New Zealand Defense Force, right? So, and I wanted to write a story about him, and I wrote to the New Zealand Defense Archives, and they released all of his documents, like all of his records, his report cards, and all this stuff. And I was wondering if there's a similar, if it falls under the um, Information Act. At some point, these things need to become part of the public, right? But probably not. You said, like you said, it's so personal. 
Yeah, I don't know. And do you know what just buzzed me out was, so my side of the family is German and yeah. I, uh, was, so Vari is German and it actually initially, yeah. originally was with a W, but it got anglicized when. Ah, Vari. It means yeah, truth so, in German. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, it was a W-A-H-R-Y. So my grandfather, yeah. and he was in the Royal New Zealand Air Force as well. What? Yeah. Then what side of the family? Your father's side? My dad's side. Yeah. But both so, of your parents are New Zealanders. New Zealanders, yep. But um, their, his dad was a German or- originally. And correct, then- yeah. And then he married. Wow. Yeah. So they moved here. And then the reason why my grandfather uh, joined the Air Force was because my grandmother and my grandfather were getting, sorry, great grandfather and grandmother were getting so ridiculed on the street and, you know, were for being German. For being German. So he. he wow. What a story. Yeah. Um, so was he a pilot? Uh, yeah, so he did a lot of intelligent stuff. So hence why he went into a he got started the photography business post war because so he could he have spoken do... German as well. Then uh, I guess no, no, actually, um, but he was posted. So he did, and he re- reported to General MacArthur a number of times too. Yeah, um, so wow. Was, yeah, it was over. In um, so I, that's the they might have met each other. I mean, the Air Force back then wasn't that massive, especially there weren't that many pilots. I remember reading, but I'll tell you something funny, Julia, that I saw in all of these um, notes and reports and things that my grandfather had signed in every single area of the thing that he had to sign where it said under the name Queen Elizabeth, he would cross out Queen Elizabeth and God (laughs) under God and all that cross out God. And he wrote in the margins, I'm an atheist. (laughs) And I have like hundreds of these documents where the signature is like him crossing out Queen Elizabeth and I know so he would have been a real and in his like notes from his superiors it was like oh he's quite a rebel and we don't advise him to teach other people he's a great pilot though so funny they would have I'll tell you something that's crazy as well on my um my dad's also on my dad's side but my dad's mother's side so My grandmother's grandfather, he was the uh, mayor of Christchurch. And wow. he was in um, Christchurch, they bought, uh, Kate, you know, Kate Shepherd. So, like, women's movement, right? Kate Shepherd. They bought, yeah. yeah. So, they bought Kate Shepherd's house from her and her husband and lived there. No way. Are you kidding me? So, my family owned Kate Shepard's house for like 30 years like from like 1913 to like 19 oh my goodness yeah so what this was your great-grandparents yeah so my grandmother was born at Kate Shepard's house oh my goodness that is huge Pretty not only nice. for New Zealand history for the world I know like she was massive like she sparked that entire movement yeah wow so there's like heaps of really cool stories i've got goosebumps julia i want to write this story down yeah yeah, amazing so and and what is even more buzzy is that so i posted like i was like coming up with some cool content you know i was like oh yeah that's right you know like that's a a cool story to tell people so i shared it on my instagram story 
gosh, jingoes, maybe six or seven weeks ago, and yeah. tagged the Kate Shepherd house because a couple of years ago the government bought it for a special oh, right. interview. Yeah. So um, I actually went to the Kate Shepherd house when I was down policing for the Christchurch earthquakes. Yeah. And went and saw the current owner who was Julie, I think her name was at the time. Yeah. Knocked on the door and I was like, yo. I'm Julia. My parents, my grandparents used to own this house. Oh my <laughs> goodness. And so it was really cool because I was policing there and um yeah, went down and had you a got to see where your the, the your past ancestors. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, what a story. And then Kate Shepherd House reached out and they were like, Oh my goodness, we've been we don't we never knew the missing link between uh, the what from you tagging it on Instagram? Yeah, amazing. And so, for <laughs> that's years, so cool. They've never known the Dougal link, which was my grandmother um, that purchased the house. Yeah, they've, they've never known the family uh, lineage from that point. So I was like, oh, here you go. So I sent them a copy wow. of the family tree and everything. We're like, yeah, that, that's us. <laughs> so and then so that's and he was mayor of Christchurch. Yes. And then who became the photographer? His son? Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, uh, my, uh, his daughter married my grandfather, who was the photographer. Gotcha. Yeah. And that then continued. So did that then end? Is that, is the photography thing still going or is that? Well, once digital kind of took, took place. Yeah. The, the photography studio, which was amazing. It closed, it closed down. And um, my dad, classic Kiwi, he was like, oh, just put everything in the skip, in the rubbish skip. And I was like, oh, I'm shit. pretty sure, Dad, that there's no. important shit in here. And yeah. there was, like, all of these cameras that my grandfather had stolen from. Oh, like, my goodness. Like, <laughs> no. From, like, from the Japanese and, like, from oh. Germans and shit, like, just being stored in the in the rooftop of, like, the photography studio. I was like, I'm pretty sure the museum will want Oh, this. my God. Yeah, like, yeah. I hope my brother's not listening to this. He absolutely super avid photographer. And funnily enough, this morning, he just had a baby with his partner. He lives oh, in Austria. And they he's been dying to get my aunt, who lives in Berlin, her old camera, and he just got it and he just got the film developed. And this is what I was going to say. It's going to make a resurgence. All of that, like vinyls making a comeback. People are buying record players again. And that type of photography, it is so unique. There is no filter on Instagram that will mimic nah, what exactly. these photos. I'll send you one. I'll send you one when, when we finish this and you can have a look. Like it is such like the graininess and the, it just captures. Yeah. So you didn't, obviously that passion didn't do you do photography uh, no not, not, not really um so i you know like through school i played in like a band so really like liked the music music stuff and yeah um yeah so music's definitely carried through but definitely not the photography side of stuff but um yeah so my, is he still alive your your father my dad is still alive my grandfather passed away a couple of years ago at yeah. in his 104th year and Jesus. he was a total like century. Baby. Yeah. Just, and, and um, yeah, he was a bit gutted because it was no fault of his own. He had like, he fell at, at his, um, his little apartment in Taupo and then like broke his arm and then his arm got infected. Oh. And then, you know, <laughs> then it went from there. yeah, he was like, Ugh. it was really good. <laughs> 
but your so your dad doesn't do it anymore. The photography. No, no, That's... he doesn't. No, his dad's a made him back into it again. I tell you, it's gonna stage a comeback. If he like people will be because it's so ubiquitous now with smartphones and all that stuff. The whole getting a film developed and all that, I guarantee you, it's just gonna the whole world goes in these waves. And at the moment, we're coming back to ugh, we're just oversaturated with all this bullshit social media and all that stuff people are going to be like nah i'm going to go back to old school taking photos on film and yeah. waiting for the development well, i just honestly like it's just we've reached this tipping point where everyone's fed up with that stuff and yeah, you know these so old school steady. things like vinyl records and like not having everything on demand you know yeah I, oh man so and he's so he got rid of all of his camera equipment and all that uh, stuff. A lot can of we it's... find the tip where's the tip doesn't biodegrade the museum the museum actually came auckland museum came and got a lot of it um so okay so museum which is good but um so i have one of his i have a old old frigidaire you know they're like the old retro fridges um here at my house now in hamilton where they used to keep all the film in the fridge there and we had everything like as a child all i remember is like mucking around in the dark room and how exciting that was and um yeah so the, the studio is still there it still exists in Parnell in Auckland but they're renting it to yep. uh Lama Zoka or it's a coffee um coffee machine oh right is it on Parnell Road yeah see because I used to live I mean I used to live on Parnell Road and I, I'm just trying to and now I'm getting this flashback that I might have seen so it was very when you're walking up the road, up the hill, is it on the right hand side? It is on if you're walking up, you know where Parnell rises and where York Street is, and there was yep. a bar on yep. the corner of York Street. They were right next to it. It was a big brick building. It's not the one with the that was the building I lived in. It has got this elevator. This is this red but you know, like right at Parnell Rises is quite a big building, like quite iconic. I know exactly right what you're talking about. No, it was on the other side of the road. So if you're walking up Parnell, okay. Road, it's on the left side across from where the park is. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. Amazing. So um, and I'm just looking there. here, Vari Photography. There's a big thing in Auckland Museum. Wow. Yeah. It's real his- history. Arranged in 122 boxes of negatives and CDs and 160 photo paper boxes. So anyone can come. It's catalogued. Wow. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. See, anyone can go, is it? Um, Doug Vary died aged 103. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Incredible. So that was his. So Flying Officer Douglas Haswell Vary. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to urge. I'm going to put a link in your bio thing that I post for people to check this out. He was just a legend and exceptionally driven. And I know that a lot of my behaviors have, has you know, when you look at your... Yeah, and I probably am a bit crazy in terms of like family history, but I love family history and being yeah. able to like pull out where you've came from and characteristics that you have derived from, um, you know, like extended family members and and I didn't get to meet or know my mum's side very well. So yeah, long story behind that. He he, my mum's dad died at ninety six a few years ago, and we never. Wow, met both him. of them really old. Yeah. yeah. But we did. We didn't really meet. I didn't. He lived in Takapuna on the North Shore, and okay. we, we never had like a relationship with him per se. So, 
it was it's just kind of really interesting I'm always really like intrigued as to like certain behaviors that I have have they been you know, what, what yeah, where they come from, <laughs> genetically encoded. Yeah, yeah. So I was going to say, so the Varis, when they first came, what year was that that they came to New Zealand? Ooh, 18... Okay, yeah. Back then, yeah. So, yeah, incredibly fortunate that they came to New Zealand and didn't stay in Germany. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm thinking. Yeah. So, and now... um. So you did the policing thing and then you kind of did this massive transition out, which I think I have so much respect for people, Julia, that can, you know, spend a significant portion of their lives doing something and then changing it all up, which I guess now that I'm talking to you, I kind of can understand this personality that you have that is very adaptable and willing to embrace change, which is something that I think the whole world needs more of right now. We need this sort of, not get stuck in our ways but be open to new things so you pivoted out of the police was there anything that sparked you to do that well I guess like you said like staying in the same old same old is actually kind of dangerous you know it's a risky it's almost risky within itself staying in your lane for such a long time and not changing because the world is constantly changing so I was aware that I mean, I loved my policing career. It was very, very hard for me to leave because I loved the people there. I loved what I was doing, but I had become a mother and a lot of I oh, genetic makeup changes because yeah. you become, your view your view on the world changes, obviously, when you become a parent. So it's, yeah. um, and then you go, oh my God, I'm so sorry, mum and dad. I was such a dick. <laughs> amazing yeah that revelation happens I'm so sorry I'm so sorry for everything I've done um and then uh yeah so I don't know my viewpoint changed and to be fair I was actually in a marriage where I wasn't too super stoked to be in and I had made some decisions where I rushed decisions where I perhaps shouldn't have but that's you know like as as you grow you you come yeah. to the realizations you're like what was the rush decision to get married um no we um both my children were uh, unplanned um okay so, well i think most children are unplanned but, yeah, yeah 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 and and then i kind of fell into the trap of well not trap but i made the executive decision where i was like well you know like i would like to have a uh you know I don't know you know with my parents setting an example you know like marriage is obviously the next step but I was you know 26 or 27 at the time and I yeah it, it was just not the right and I think deep down I knew that but I just wasn't, I wasn't quite listening to myself as to where, where I was going so but that's a story for another time so I, I knew that I was preparing long term to exit my marriage and my relationship but I knew wow that must be hard to know that and still have to live in that situation yeah because of the children presumably yeah Yeah. but but I knew that on a policewoman's salary I wasn't going to be able to sustain the kind of lifestyle that I had envisioned that I wanted for my like you had had yeah Yeah. being like well am I going to be able to do this for my children probably not like I need to actually make something of myself and then also like um I was at that point as well within the police that I was starting to become frustrated that I wasn't getting the outcomes that I had wanted in terms of like, uh, you know, 
you know, solving the, cases. Yeah, in the courts, and I was getting frustrated by that. And oh wow, okay. Cases, I was kind of going, so like I'm putting in all this effort and so much heart and soul to what I'm doing, and I'm yeah. It's just not. I, I, I was starting to believe that I would be able to have more impact in terms of community outcomes, positive, constructive community outcomes, if I was running my own show and in a private setting. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so I had met a, another policeman that was um, mortgage broking at the, uh, at the same time. So he was policing okay. and then mortgage broking. I think he was like working. Side gig. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, that intrigued me. And I thought, oh, yeah, okay, well, that's interesting that you're doing that. And he mentioned, he said, oh, you know, you would be really good with life insurance. And I was like, fuck off. Like, no <laughs> way. <laughs> it's I, like, that's like not a compliment. Yeah. Yeah. And that was just so my funny. own perception on the industry, right? Because yeah. it was like, I had no understanding of it. And I was like, absolutely not. I do not want to be doing that or selling. I think most people don't have much of an understanding of it. No, no. And and I think now in hindsight that that's where the opportunity has really come about and how yeah. everything has turned out how it has. So um, I think a few months later I went to a – life insurance roadshow kind of thing and i just went wow and all based on this guy saying that you would be good as a life yeah, insurance. And that's he, incredible yeah and i just kind of went that's kismet oh, you call that yeah what have, I, what have i got yeah. to lose i may as well go sniff it out yeah. and see what it's like and um then I met a few other really incredible people that were working in the industry that were like, oh, this is what we do. And this is actually what it's about, you know, these um, advice, insurance advisors. And yeah, these are the results that we get for clients. And I was like, holy crap, like that's actually pretty amazing, you know, that they build these relationships yeah. with these clients that last a really long time and that when stuff does happen, so if somebody passes away or gets sick with cancer, that their role was to step in and handle all their affairs and, you know, create yeah. some sort of prosperity out of such an adverse, horrible situation. And I was like, actually, yeah. that is kind of what I need because – I wasn't getting, I was getting that to a degree in the police, you know, like if I would attend a sudden death or something, I could step in and do the best possible role that I could for the family at the time. But I was a bandaid. I was only yeah. there for a few short hours and then I was gone. And that was all of the impact that I could have. So the way that they were presenting it to me, I was like, well, I've got an opportunity here to do some really cool things and change the perception. Because if this is my perception being a person not understanding the industry, like I need yeah. to tell and show people this because it's way bigger than what we actually realize. And so yeah. I just saw that as a great opportunity to crack the whole thing wide open and be like, did you guys actually know that this exists and we can do this? And this is an amazing, we can achieve some really amazing life-changing outcomes for people um, just by changing the perception or the dirty word of life insurance because it kind of was it was yeah. such a gross it's just so gross um well I could just say in a, in a time of me researching you I've become way more um I've seen it as way more of an amicable thing than I think a lot of the misperception of insurance comes from America comes from it is quite a cutthroat insurance and whatever with the way Hollywood has portrayed it and but the more I read about you and the more I looked into what if you 
if you approach it from a small scale, it can actually do what it's aimed to be doing as opposed to these huge, large multinational conglomerates. Correct. And that's, I think, what you're doing. Yeah, and it's that intermediary role, right? So it's kind of like you've got this person managing all of your affairs for you versus, you know, the insurance company. But to a degree, like, I have to give them credit. Like, they they have shifted incredibly, even in the last five years. They actually yeah. are great people wanting to do good things as well. Yeah. And, and, and same thing, you know, a lot of people will be going, oh, like, insurance advisors and brokers, they're all just yeah. the schmucks. They actually aren't, like, I'd say no, the majority they're human beings as well. They, yeah, yeah, they are good people. You know, it's like the same thing. Oh, fuck the police. They're just a bunch of jerks. Yeah. I'm like, well, they're actually not. They're actually no. good people trying to. I find people. myself trying to do that with people in the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah, I worked yeah, in that yeah. industry for a while and being like, nah, there's actually, they're not all money grubbers. A lot of them actually do want to implement change and Correct. help people. Yeah. And it's just that we love, humans love portraying Villains. negative shit yeah exactly <laughs> we're we're addicted to villain villainy yeah and um, it's like oh you don't want to believe that there's a something as a good insurance broker yeah right? it doesn't absolutely and and as time has grown like i, I think it's re- i i feel very privileged now that i'm in the position where if somebody comes to me and is like oh hey julia can you look at my insurance policy you know what do you think i'll be like it's perfectly adequate like I don't need to yeah. do anything to this. Your insurance, your current insurance advisor has done a wonderful job. Like it's really yeah. cool to be able to be like seeing other people's work and and knowing that that they, they, they too are doing a really good job. And yeah. um, you know, I don't need to look at another thing or rewrite it somewhere else just to make some yeah. extra coin. You know, it's really satisfying to know that there are really good people out there doing great things for people and I'm certainly not the only one there is a huge amount of people it's just they haven't quite cracked into um, portraying that yet or being visible enough to show people that they are that way inclined you know and yeah that has been my business journey really things transformed for me last year uh, post the first lockdown is that it created such a good opportunity for me to actually take a hard look at my business and be like, this actually looks like shit from the outside until you meet me. A lot of my businesses were, my business was basically just referrals, 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 referrals. Yeah. And I, again, I was like, I'm not comfortable sitting in this space. It's a dangerous place to be, you know, like I need to actually, um, create a brand and be more visible within the community and not just rely on referrals i need for people to be able to find me and see me and yeah you know create a really cool brand that tells a great story and a website i was gonna say your brand is it's who did that your the actual logo is phenomenal the whole co- the color coordination of it yeah can um, we say can we do a shout out to yeah, that person yeah. so, so there was a couple of people so um deb mckibben was my she redesigned the whole entire brand for me so yeah she went through this process that well I was like whoa this is intense and quite invasive and I made me quite uncomfortable but in what sense like asking you so she interviewed me so sat down I think we like she interviewed me for over an hour doing kind of exactly what you're doing pulling out all of my values for me personally um, what my beliefs were on the world, uh, how yeah. I felt about things, um, 
and then interviewed a whole variety of different clients of mine that had been through the process wow. from start to finish. And then interviewed, yeah, and then she interviewed like BDMs for representatives of, of insurance companies that I work alongside with to be yeah. like uh, to expose what it was like working with me. And oh, <laughs> what was this woman's name? What is she's like a guru or something? What is well, she is. She is. She's like she actually is like a brand guru. So pulling that all together she was able to identify who I am and what the brand is that I was trying to achieve, which I couldn't visibly do myself. Like I was like, I know what I want, but how do you actually pull that all together? Yeah. Put it into one piece. And she was able to do that. And so we came up with, um, that the slogan as it were was shaping better futures and yeah kind of basically did you come up with that together that's brilliant well no she did she did she came up with that just by pulling out all the information of what i wanted to do, to achieve and that that really sums it up in a nutshell it is that's what yeah. we want is to shape better futures for for the community and for people that i work with and that can be either through the work that i do in insurance or like the philanthropic stuff that i like to participate in by creating yeah. outcomes for the community so um yeah I mean that really is what we want to achieve and she perfectly summed that up and when in terms of the brand you know how you mentioned the colors and stuff she did all this investigative work where she went out and looked at what the market was doing and insurers and other advisors and brokerages and stuff and we wanted to position ourselves with with our brand to be nothing like any of the typical financial services branding you definitely achieved that yeah I know <laughs> Like it just, it beckons you to read more the website as well. It's just like you get in and you're like, this is not an insurance. This is like a, it, it, it reminded me of an NGO. I was like, this is some type of, what are they doing? They're doing something positive here. And yeah, genius. Absolutely incredible. Yeah. And, and the cool uh, thing as well, like same thing with the content. Like when I wrote yeah. the content, I just wrote it as I, as I talk. So when you that was my next question, who wrote your content? Did you write that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I incredible. I wrote it it just so when people read it and then they speak to me on the phone or we have like a consult or whatever, that it's just exactly the same as I would yarn to them. That's there's no, there's no change. There's no like, oh, this is who we say we are, but actually, yeah, not what we are about. I don't no. want there to be any like preconceived ideas that I'm going to be delivering myself to you this way when I'm not. And I think my my journey has been like, and totally that transformation from the early stages in my policing career where I was like, oh, this is who I need to be or who people uh, yeah. need to perceive me. I was like, nah, fuck, I'm just going to be myself. So then I don't yeah. get to maintain this persona of what I'm about. Um because that's really tiring and exhausting. I'm just going to be Julia. So nice. I wrote my business structure that way. So, and that means that you can align with the people that are uh, aligned with your values anyway. So it makes yeah. like clients can look at it and be like, Nope, or yep. I want to work with yeah. you. And that's great for me and it's great for them. So either way, it's a really good outcome for the both of us. <laughs> well, it's, I was about to say that's a really good way to be in life in general, that it's you're not always going to please everyone. So at least put yourself out there and then attract who's going to create the least amount of conflict oh, right, that you're dealing with. Yeah. And so I was thinking your time... I mean, we speak so positively, which I love about your time in the police, but there would have been obviously some very super harrowing scenarios and even just seeing dead bodies and 
as a police person, you see how dangerous life can be, right? And how unpredictable and how, you know, we often think we're the heroes of our story and we're gods and we're, but reality, I mean, anyone who's ever been in a car accident knows that, right? How, wow, can really just hit you. And you're like, holy shit, this is a car. It's made of metal. It's super dangerous. And like, I've always had this, like, I've got a fascination with sharks, right? And like, I've tried to rebrand sharks. I actively worked at getting shark finning banned in New Zealand, like seven years ago. And I'm always talking to people like, it's so bizarre how confident and calmly we walk along the sidewalk whilst these metal things are hurtling past us at 50, 60 kilometers an hour. And we don't blink an eye much, but we go into the ocean and we're suddenly scared that some shark that is so, you know, not in our water. And that's like this perception. I've always said my aim with everything that I do is to rebrand this animal. Like to like, we view dolphins as these super friendly and nice. They're not always super friendly and nice. They can be dicks as well. Like that we view the way Maori used to view sharks. Like sharks were not these dangerous creatures. They were actually allies, you know, and all of Maori mythology is like, the Milky Way is a shark, you know, Mangaroa, it's like the, the shark got put into the universe, into the galaxy to be able to look over and protect Maori. Like there's this beautiful, so I'm like, people go through life um, not seeing the dangers that they should be perceiving, but instead opting to invent these things that will never happen like I don't know. Would you insure against shark attacks? I mean, <laughs> Is that something that you should insure against? You, no. You've really hit a, a point, I mean, like a, a very emotional point for me because the, the one takeaway that I had from my time in the police was vehicle stuff. And it's exactly yeah. like you say. I, I just think it is so bonkers, you know, like we're, we're so, and granted we're super focused on COVID right now, but I – it drives me crazy when people go, oh, the road toll this weekend. I was like, when you say road toll and 10 people have died this weekend, you know, the road toll was at 10. I was like, you know that those were humans, eh? Like yeah, those were yeah, people exactly. in the car with lives, with family, with friends, with children, with futures or, um, you know, like. I, I the perception I don't know what the the wording toll road toll has it's to horrible change. it's yeah like these were living breathing human people that yeah. were that either made a mistake themselves or somebody else has made a mistake and because people have become so freaking casual about driving motor vehicles I I just cannot it, yeah I think the language is largely to blame for that as well you're, you're completely right it's not something that you personalize in your yeah when i hear the word road toll i i think oh is it an animal is it a human that you don't even right you don't you don't put the human element there and i think so much comes from language i i had a psychologist lisa mclennan absolute genius on the show and we were talking about um suicide and she's like i've made it my priority to not use the word committed suicide that she says that someone has attempted to end their life like that's what she says and the words like she's maori as well like and maori is such a beautiful language and it's so every word means something really specific and like it's used sparingly whereas i think a lot of our language western 
Westerners, we don't appreciate the actual, the impact that language has on us, right? Mm. And so the word like to commit suicide means you're committing a crime, right? It's like this whole, and that influences our perception of this thing. And mm. I think you've got it in your power, Julia, we, we to petition. I mean, it wouldn't be the Oxford Dictionary. You would start it in, within New Zealand to say like, because it starts with the police as well, the way they would use the words about, people dying and the thing is in New Zealand we actually have that opportunity because heaven forbid we don't have as high statistics well statistics we do but we are a small country so the numbers are small enough for them to still be significant mm. especially with COVID with the deaths like it's 28 deaths right we might have you know 3,000 historic cases but we can still identify the 28 people that have died whereas in america it's over 250,000, right so that the number becomes completely obscured oh, so i exactly. think thank you so much for yeah talking like the language is so important the words that we use like um they can evoke things in our mind that will help us change our behavior which is you know sadly i needed to go through a car accident to realize to not be as cocky when i drive and be mm. really really careful and to realize that it's not actually me every time i'm in the, in the car now and someone's like driving close corners and like really going fast i'm like you know you are a good driver but you know that it's actually the other person as well driving that can cause the accident so it doesn't matter how good you are as a driver the faster you go the less you perceive the other's mistakes and yeah so it's it's crazy i had to do an accident to teach me that and that's why yeah Uh, but that's life though isn't it sometimes you have to like go through these fortunately silly and horrible and painful experiences to have a lesson learned from it and i and i think that has been the blessing that i've taken out of the police because i i saw it without it necessarily directly impacting me so I, I yeah. have that um, perception and um, perspective or, or, you know like well things could be so much worse than they actually are you know because this is going on all the time but yeah I didn't I I, I was quite um, lucky I didn't really have any hard out uh, like experiences uh, well, no, to you. I, I mean I mean like, yes, in the police, yes, but, like, I didn't suffer from... PTSD? I didn't until I left. So okay. I was diagnosed with it probably two years after. And the trigger, wow. the trigger was the mosque attacks, attacks, actually, in Christchurch. Holy shit, yeah, okay. And so I... And I and like the why the mind is crazy. The what what the mind yeah. does boggles me because I was like, why is it this particular event that has triggered PTSD in me when I never attended anything like that? But where my mind took me, and I was like, I need to speak to somebody because I'm yeah. freaking out. And my anxiety went through the roof, I, and I've yeah. never experienced anxiety before. So I was like, something serious. Wow. Um, Had you ever envisioned something like that happening in your mind, like played it through going, oh, what if there would be a terrorist attack when um, you were in the police force? Not really. No. no okay. So it was. It, I think it was like the lack of control or like insight maybe or information that I didn't have anymore. 
Like, you yeah. know, when you're in those roles, you, you're usually pretty clued up and you get fed intel and stuff. And I was... And I suppose it was close to home as well because it was in Christchurch and that's where you had gone the last time there was a massive thing yeah. happening there. But the, the main concern that I had was like my kids. So my kids are in like a... Yeah. Uh, you know, a school that was, um, and I was like, what if there's retaliation or something like that? And they go into like a, a, a you know, the school that was nearby or, you know, like, yeah. how am I, like, so my mind was playing out, like, how am I, if something happens, how am I going to get my kids out of there? Like, so I, I had already, like, this is how psychotic I became. I had planned, because uh, I knew which, my, my kids were in like the junior section part of the school. So I was like, if something yeah. goes down, this is how I'm going to get them out you know, like, oh, wow. I, and I was like, whoa. And then from, from that point, it kind of triggered on other events with like, um, I started having a few flashbacks to a lot of suicides that I had attended, which I had completely forgotten about that. even. Oh existed. my goodness. Like, it oh triggered my... that. Tr it, Holy shit. It is just crazy that your mind still remembers yeah. them. Well, and that the triggers can be something so, I mean, that was a massive event, but it was so unrelated to anything that you'd ever gone through yourself, I, I but still. And that's why I couldn't understand it. So like, um, yeah, so I went and saw this wonderful psychologist um, Yeah. and there had no depression, no anxiety, nothing like that. It's purely PTSD. And it was like the most crazy, I mean, and occasionally, occasionally I might have like a, a flashback to something and I don't know what the trigger is or there's something obviously that my brain might pick up on and then all of a sudden you're kind of back where you were back into it um, so do you never have anxiety you never suffered from anxiety when you were on the police force never. Like you never remember getting anxiety attacks or no uh, never I was completely composed all the time and probably why I experienced what, what? it post, post it, built, it built up <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah exactly you were constantly in this state of yeah yeah making and, sure everything is okay and, and yeah and it's and it's interesting like why my brain goes to specific events as well and a lot of it I think I've I identified it was that feeling of guilt as to why I didn't feel more sadness for you know perhaps like a sudden death that I had been at or yeah you know, for a victim well, like why I was such a like not a hard-nosed bitch but why no I, I know what you mean like, yeah Oh, I just need to do this and get on and then go to the next Why isn't it affecting me more? Yeah. So I think it was the guilt associated with it as I yeah. reversed and kind of came back into being a civilian again. I was like, oh, man, like I could have. Um, it's like your brain was protecting you in a way and then hmm. it didn't have that shield anymore when you left because you weren't in that situation. It's, it's, it's I mean... Honestly, Julia, all respect to you. This put, I could never do that. I could never be a policeman. Like for starters, I'm absolutely abhorred and scared of violence. Like for me, I just I I've had anxiety my, like my whole life pretty much. So I when you talk about that, like those experiences of having like I get that in the most innocuous situations. Like it's under control now. Like I see a counselor and I take medication and stuff, but like um it's the even more so like i had to be i was in the air force in germany like because in germany you have to you get conscripted well mm -hmm. not anymore but back then and that was one of the most traumatic experiences of my life like having to do boot camp and all that stuff so um but it's all for show right like you don't the german military would never get employed we'd never go to war whereas police it's like you're getting trained for the real fucking deal right you're leaving the police academy you're not going to be 
stuck at some desk somewhere like you do in the military in Germany, you're actually gonna go on the streets. So I just, I'm, I'm not getting anxiety. I am getting a little bit, if I hadn't taken my medication this morning, <laughs> I probably would be breaking out in like sweats and like just hearing you talk so nonchalantly about it. I'm like, oh my Lord, like this is like the stuff. I'm like, my brain is going at like a million miles an hour going like, going in that situation even you when you did the ride along and how you were like oh my god this is the most amazing i was like holy shit man if i would have to do that oh my god like i wouldn't be able to cope with it so um yeah so you learned the benefit of seeing a psychologist do you still see someone um, on and off or is it no not really i think because no. yeah, they they teach you really cool tools and i have no shame in admitting that that that's been a part of the journey of the exit because yeah. I think that if you don't say stuff about it, then people do almost like they feel embarrassed that they've had to, that they were feeling that way or, you know, yeah. sometimes there's, yeah. you know, like, especially in the police, if you admitted that you were like, Oh, I'm having a hard time or, you know, since that sudden death or the um, yeah. that I went to or, you know, that decomposed body that had been there for four weeks. If you mentioned that you were feeling like affected by it um yeah i don't know like you'd get would, judged you would get judged that you weren't kind of or capable of doing you, a job anymore yeah, yeah. Well, well maybe you wouldn't but i think it was probably the fear no, i'm pretty was. sure you would like it's yeah. you've got to be so on point in that job like any mistake could end up yeah like i can i can get that it's yeah. like you wouldn't want someone who's a pilot to be in you know going oh i'm a bit anxious about this flight like you'd be like uh okay i don't want you flying the plane yeah <laughs> um, i can get that so there's like it's not like it's not coming from a negative judging it's more like can you do this job like especially if you're going out to like a dangerous confrontation and your partner's there and like have you got your partner's back to yeah 100 percent totally like have you um, got your shit gonna... together today yeah so <laughs> Because, yeah, often when I think about these things, because they're, I mean, nowadays we're lucky that we've got these tools. We've got, yeah, cognitive behavioral therapy and like, but we've also got medication that can literally biologically help you. So were you prescribed medication no, at I all? No, I wasn't. When... No, it no. was purely um, because... Wow, so you just had to ride through it. Yeah, so there's heaps of stuff. So it, I think for me, it was basically trying to get my head to understand why it was doing what it was doing. So yeah. like, and and getting into the flashback, because mine, mine were flashbacks. So I would be triggered by smells, you know, like I'd been to wow. a, a death that, oh shit, like 15 years ago um, in Auckland where a, a, the gentleman had died in his kitchen and he it was during summer and he'd probably been there like three weeks or something but he had um bananas in the kitchen that were like that had gone brown so it was like the smell so could of really like smell the, them. the brown bananas and holy shit I don't like that smell at all so I can understand it triggers yeah, something yeah. so it's like you know like if the bananas get too brown in this in the bowl at home or something I'll be like I'm right back there <laughs> Oh my goodness! <laughs> yeah, I'm like, oh wow, you know. So, and so, yeah, you she taught you the psychologist taught you what type of tools would you have taken? Yeah, so the, the tools were probably uh, the main thing is to get back into the present moment. So instead of going yeah. back to where you were, focusing on things that were visibly in front of you and really getting descriptive um, of 
uh, things that were in the present. So, you know, like looking at a cup or something and be like, I am looking at a cup. It has blue stripes. Oh, yeah, yeah. And blah, yeah. Blah, blah, blah. So, Amazing. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So doing a lot of those tools. Um, yeah, really, bringing really your helped. awareness into the now. Yeah, and having um, a really good support system in place as well. So, like, and being comfortable with saying, as opposed to you in the police when you weren't comfortable and saying, like, I'm not feeling all right today. Y- yeah. Kind of. and, and if I'm honest, it didn't really happen. It doesn't happen all the time. Like, my life is absolutely not controlled by PTSD. It was just like yeah. that, that um, I had. A, especially that tooth around that mosque that year yeah. that happened, it was definitely at its highest, but yeah. it was under trying to get my brain to understand why it was acting like that and yeah. gaining control of it. And, um, you know, I've always had that mindset that, uh, and my dad's very much like this. He's, he just gets shit done. He is one of those people that's like, Oh, somebody's thrown up all through the hallway gets down on his knees and cleans it up, you know, like Amazing. if I don't do it, nobody else is going to do it. And so I've always yeah. had that like independence. I'm like that with about the dishes. Yeah. 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 You have to <laughs> do it. They're not going to go away. Well, you just, exactly. Um, well, incredible. So I had another recently, I spoke to um, Tracy Alexander. She's a ex sort of foreign news correspondent. She worked in Australian television and then most recently in Israel for like a large Israeli media company and she did like breaking stories and like you can imagine like Israel is like pretty much the only country in the world that's been at war for the since its inception right 60 70 years constantly everyone's on drill yeah so everyone goes through the military and she's said so I'm drawing this comparison between you being in the police force and every day being like something could happen and in Israel every day it could be any rocket could rocket attack could happen in Ashkelon, you know, there could be a suicide bomber. And she said, like, in Israel, there's everyone as a collective society, it's like culturally embedded there that you live every day as if it were your last. No one talks about it, but it's like, it's in the mindset that, because they're so used to, I mean, I think she even kind of hinted at the fact that the entire population has got some sort of a post- you know, traumatic disorder going on, like because of this this immense pressure of being hated by all of your neighboring countries and some saying we want to wipe you off the map and just the, the prescience of living with that in the back of your mind makes you appreciate every moment so much more. And so she did this pivot away from, she didn't want to report the news anymore. Like a bit like you, like it was too much and she couldn't change things. It was like, oh, I went in there with such high expectations. Like I wanted to tell stories and get people to embrace. But she was like, I got frustrated because she, you know, was working for this large organization, couldn't do that. And then pivoted it out. And now she's, she teaches, and she's like a head coach, like what you would say, right? So it's very similar to you having gone through. And so I was like, most thinking like being a police person is like living in Israel. Um, where you're constantly yeah, under threat, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. you wake up every morning and you're like, but the human mind and body is so incredible. We get used to everything. Anyone who's ever had chronic pain is like, knows that. Like the body gets used to shit. It just does, right? Normalized. And the same with you, like, yeah. So that first, that time that you got in that police car that when you were, and you weren't a police person, you witnessed all that was your first entrance in there. And then every 
subsequent time that you got into a car and did it, it got easier and easier and easier. And that stress and fear, it was still there, but your brain overrode it, right? And you learned to, I guess when you came home, you'd be like, oh, thank God. And you'd take your big vest off and you'd be like, oh, and I don't have to, it would have been such a nice feeling of, oh, now I don't need to police. I don't need to take care of anyone. I can just relax. You'd really enjoy that time of being, and then it would all start all over again. And slowly but surely, I think, yeah, you get used to it, but the, the toll is that you're not dealing with it. I guess that was my question with like, shouldn't counselor, shouldn't police people like have counseling like always? Like that's, but that's just me and my sensitive brain, right? Because like often, I mean, okay, to pivot away again, you wrote something that I thought was brilliant. And I think in the context of New Zealand, as much as I love this country, there is a real problem about men embracing their emotional side and that you wrote like this whole, she'll be all right. Like that attitude results in us having like this abhorrently high, statistically above average in the OECD suicide rate in New Zealand, especially male suicide rate, where people think it's a weakness to talk about their vulnerability and their emotions. And I think this ties in really good with what you're doing with the insurance thing and in that that same mentality of not talking about when you're not feeling right or you're feeling emotionally insecure or something is the same that like people wouldn't protect their families by getting an insurance, you know, mm. this is sort of like, Oh, everything's going to be okay. It's going to be fine. Like until it isn't right. And so that's something that needs to shift like that narrative that's what I love that you wrote that within your bio and your websites or you wrote like the attitude needs to change. Mm. It's sweet. And it, it served us well when we were the, you know, the, well, partly the Maori and the colonial overlords that came in and needed to build these like massive farms or burn trees. down. like, yeah, she'll be all right. You need to get to, but we're not living in that society anymore. Like we've done that now. We don't need that gung ho, crazy that's why i've got this love hate thing with rugby as well i find it it's an incredible sport but i'm like what is it teaching young children like it's okay to bump bang into each other and be really violent and you know and then oh afterwards go and have a beer and all it's everything it's so tied in and like that's my only criticism of this country is this there is this embedded male it's it is mainly driven by male not quite toxic sort of attitude which is it's slowly changing but like you were fully immersed with that as a woman in the super male dominated profession um that i think it's up to people like you to actually bring about that change and i think being in the position that you're in now puts you into quite a good place to do that and like you have done amazing um, awareness campaigns already you've done that step up and save lives yeah, campaign. yeah that was really how did you go about doing that julia um, well that came about because um uh a family member of ours um was uh sick so um yeah he was diagnosed with cancer at about one and a half and unfortunately he didn't survive wow. and the big call for him to have um uh 
for us to start giving blood, like more than anything, you know, over financial stuff. Hey, this is something that you guys can do right now that's tangible and effective and it doesn't cost you anything. Please start donating because he's having so many surgeries and chemo and all of these other, um, you know, kids up at Starship are are really needing that. And I was like, holy crap, why have I not been giving blood like my whole entire life? What the hell? Amazing. Um, And had no, you know, it's just like one of those things of being like, I'm completely uneducated about this and have have had no clue. So I went in that day and um, started donating. And yeah, that basically really opened my eyes of being like, wow, this is such an amazing and easy thing to do because constantly with charities and all sorts, you're always being asked like, oh, can you do, you know, there's so many like stroke foundation and heart and dementia, you know, like, and as much as we want to give to all of them, we really can't. And so what I found with blood donations is because it, there was no monetary value attached to it. It was something that was incredible where I could go up there for half an hour, 45 minutes give a part of my own body which is like insane it or yeah. just makes me go whoa this is unbelievable and give it yeah. to somebody else you know and one donation can save up to three people like that's whoa. so amazing that's you know? that yeah i mean what <laughs> yeah that's so and, cool <laughs> and this then it gets replenished so it's not like you're giving away a kidney or something like exactly. that that grows back right yeah and um, then and then after a while, I just learning more about it. And then the feel good feeling that I fa- had walking out there going, I've done something really cool today. And and I thought if everybody started feeling this or this, experiencing this, like giving, hopefully, you know, maybe would it start them on a path of continuing on doing really cool, good things yes. and boost your morale and be like, I'm worthy. I'm part of something bigger than me and contributing and saving somebody's life this is pretty amazing and it's really easy and I get a cup of tea or a coffee and a bicky with it and some good yarns with the staff up there or other people that are donating and yeah sharing stories and having human connection and understanding why other people are donating you know and yeah or how long they've been donating for and all of that kind of stuff so um so Waikato Hospital is the largest hospital in the southern hemisphere and obviously us wow I didn't know that yeah and so what we did uh last year is we um i got in contact with new zealand blood service because i was like i need to i need to give or do something and have like a really big impact and this is why having your own business is cool because you can do this kind of stuff where in the police you can't or you know in bigger organizations if you're by yourself and your own boss then really the world is your oyster you can do whatever you like so yeah. I reached out to them and I said, Hey, I've got this idea. Like, have you guys thought about, you know, running a really awesome campaign to try and encourage new donors? And um, and the blood service were kind of like, Whoa, we have just been doing the same old, same old in terms of like recruiting new donors and, you know, just staying in our lane doing what we're doing. And yes. a lot of them were kind of nervous about going out and approaching businesses and saying, Hey, would you you know, consider your staff coming up and donating blood or whatever. And I was like, far out. You guys just need to ask, like, who's going to say no to <laughs> donating blood? Like, if they say no, you're like, uh, maybe a fear of needles, but, you know, what, or they just legitimately can't because they've been yeah. in the UK or something. Um, so anyway, so we all partnered with them and Hamilton being Hamilton, it's great because it's small and a lot of yeah. the business owners all know each other. So yeah 
all it took was really a few emails and like, hey man, can you come in? We're, we're, we're wanting to do this project. Can you get your staff and your team on board? Um, and so we created like some cool little videos and clips, you know, outlining what yeah. the stats were and what we were trying to achieve in Hamilton by some of the business leaders and local restaurant and bar owners that everybody in the community knows saying, hey, we're, we're getting on board with this. You guys should too. And so we spread that out. And, and yeah, long story short, we managed to boost the blood, new blood donors in that short period by just shy of 300%. So amazing. Yeah. And I mean, look, that doesn't take much to do stuff like no. that. You know, if you get a group of good, normal people together and it's just a mat matter of like going, hey, um, hopefully this will help you do on that journey to do good things and it doesn't cost you anything. Yeah. Um, so I think. No, and you also think, satisfying. yeah, the psychological benefit that you get from it as well as a donor the feeling of I have, you know, not only donated my blood, I've potentially saved a life. Like that is a huge thing, especially now going through this where everyone's kind of like losing hope with things. It's like, it's this brings out a real sense of community, which I think we need a lot of as well. Yeah. And that's why we yeah. did it post lockdown and we need to do it again, but we've got some real restraints with like, we tried to do it again um, just post the second lockdown earlier, you know, a few months back. Yeah. Um, and the it was supposed to be at Sky City, but Sky City couldn't get because it was level four lockdown. They didn't yeah. legally; they weren't allowed to go in and open it up for the donor center for the blood yeah. service. And then we tried to do it at Claudelands, which is um, you know Hamilton City Council were going to donate the um, Claudelands event center, which is the main yeah. pub, but it was right next door where a COVID testing station was. Oh so right. <laughs> Amazing. We're running a gauntlet here. So Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I loved it that then you turned Hamilton into the blood capital of New blood donor capital of New Zealand, which is yeah. just that's yeah. just a little bit of self-motivated effort. Whereas these guys you often get when you're inside doing like the guys working for New Zealand Blood Service, like all power to them. But they're blinded as well because they're just they think that they can't live out beyond of what they've already done. And it takes someone like you to come along and go, nah, you just need to talk to people and they'll do it. So Yeah, it's just and totally, you know, when you're stuck in that organization for a while, you kind of need some new new flesh and blood to kind of shake things up again. And I think that really yeah. inspired them. Um, which was really cool to see. And then, you know, uh yeah, just constantly working on other things that we want to that I want to implement and um, yeah, and change. Well, things. I'm definitely going to link to that on in your bio now. Um, I'm just getting a bit aware of the time. I'm sure, and I heard something beep on your phone, so I'm like, oh really? We scheduled an hour. Um, are, are you okay with this? Are you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm fine. Okay, I awesome. Haven't, I haven't scheduled anything else this afternoon. So I was also thinking three kids you've got now oh. and like. <laughs> so someone fine. else is taking care of them oh, no, um, amazing like yeah, yeah. so um, what sorry <laughs> yeah i was gonna say where were you gonna move this you're gonna move it up to sky city the step up and save lives uh, so you well, move it to auckland yeah once for now, we can. We don't, yeah it's a hamilton based thing so i haven't um been in touch with actually the blood service since this most recent one yeah because I, it's rare, it is quite hard because everything's so uncertain. We don't know what's... Yeah, of course. And we have to be very careful, obviously, with the spread. And then, Super you know, you've got to make sure people are 
with blood and there is no spread, but it still remains like an essential service. So if you want to go and donate that you can. Yeah. Um, but well, yeah, I think, I think the, the, the key message, it's, it's cool. Like doing all these, this external stuff and driving really awesome community outcomes is great. And I think it's been that journey of like what you mentioned before was um, mental health and, you know, she'll be right and all that kind of stuff. And, my, my journey at the moment is as well is like sharing um you know the importance of having that time to yourself and like and trying to bring in um meditation I guess a bit more into people's lives now yeah. and it might be a bit eerie fairy for a lot of people but the value that I have had from implementing that into my life has been massive and you can you can argue whatever meditation means to you independently, whether or not it's quiet time or doing something that you enjoy that can kind of spark inspiration or time for you to reflect on yourself or feelings that you're feeling. Because I, I do it every morning for wow. five minutes or 20 minutes or however long that I feel. But to actually let those feelings of anxiety come or that discomfort and kind of face them head on and be like, cool, it's, it's okay to feel this way. Yeah. And you know, what, what things could I do today to get me out of them? And, and to be fair at, at what was it about 11 o'clock or something today, I was feeling a bit ho-hum. I was like, Ugh. uh, you know, you know, those feelings. <laughs> amazing like, that you didn't cancel me. Yeah. I'm oh, the no, 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 I wouldn't. So I was like, I need music. Like I need to turn good. on some, like really good, ragey music just to and i blew i put my poor other half is sitting in the office going oh well i'm got like, my music on level 10 but you know you've got to just do what you need to do to get you in a, yeah. in a good headspace whatever that means because we're in such a yeah. challenging environment at the moment like uh i've um yeah, I, I'm, I feel really bad for people because, I, I, you know, I feel quite privileged where I feel like I'm quite self-aware and able to be like, yeah, I, I, I'm feeling like shit right now. So there's obviously I, I'm out of balance somehow. How can I like reconnect into myself to figure out what I'm missing and what could I do to fix that? So yeah, a, a lot of people can't because of their external environment that they – it's, it's so hard for them to get out of that. So it's about yeah. just trying to open up that discussion to be like, it's okay to feel crap. Yeah, it's okay to not be okay. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, this is what one thing about this whole situation that I love, Julia, is that what f used to frustrate me was this whole business as usual. Everything's fine. You know, climate change happening. Oh, we don't give a shit. Let's just keep going. We've got the highest male suicide rate in the OECD. Oh, we'll just keep going. And like suddenly everything's come to a halt. The supply, global supply chain is kind of collapsing. Not all this fucking bullshit you're getting from China, all these plastic dolls and all that shit. None of that shit's going to exist anymore. This yeah. is all going away and we're all forced to have a big hard reckon and look at ourselves and that's why i love the fact that you mentioned the meditating and i'll tell you talking to tracy my friend in israel she was saying and i'd never known this i'd always thought like i struggled with meditation like getting my mind to calm down and that's only because i thought of meditation as this one singular thing it's uh, it's not it's a bunch there's a, so many different techniques and she said there's almost as many 
meditation techniques as there are personalities of people. So right. you just need to find the one that works for you. Like you don't need to think of nothing. That's not part of it. It's like, I think what you touched upon is so important is, um, especially in this challenging time, is to really recognize your feelings and then and name them. And if you're feeling shame, to bring that up and say, why am I feeling shame? And it's, but again, like you say, some people don't have that luxury. And that's like, if you're struggling to put food on the table or eat like that, you're not going to be thinking about that stuff. You, you will, it'll be affecting you physiologically and psychologically, but you just don't have the time. And that's why I think we're look, learning to give a long, hard look at ourselves and also the way we treat finances, the way we treat poverty. Um, there was this great presidential candidate in America called Andrew Yang. I don't know if you heard of him. He was like um, Asian American, first Asian American to run for president. And he ran on the platform of universal basic income, right? He wanted to give every American $1,000 a month, no strings attached. Every American, every billionaire, every millionaire, every homeless person on the street gets $1,000 a month. Everyone like up in arms, like, oh, how are we going to pay for this? And he went to this beautiful fill philosophical assessment of what money really is he's like money is what we value as a society like do we do we pay the mother that stays at home with her two autistic children and you know has struggles taking care of them do we actually pay her to take care of these kids no we don't there's so many things that we do in our daily lives that we don't pay for like the the grandchild that takes care of his mother who's stuck in a wheelchair and all that like that that's he's doing a service to the world by taking care of her but he's not getting paid for it so he's like this universal basic income. And funnily enough, he, this was in 2018, he came about and it was the elections where Biden eventually got elected. But so he brought that into the public consciousness of America. He's like, Oh, Andrew Yang, he's the UBI guy. And um, he's also like a mathematician. He's highly intelligent. And he like, blah, blah. And, Lo and behold, what happened? COVID happened. What did America do? They literally instigated a UBI. Like it was through emergency circumstances. Same thing happened in New Zealand. Like every person who was self-employed got government money handed out. And suddenly we saw how easy it was to help people out who are struggling, right? We needed this like crisis to happen, right? Why can't we expand that type of thinking? And this also goes into the whole insurance, like... Because it's um, insurance, especially life insurance, shouldn't be something that's only the privileged and people who are well off who have the spare couple of hundred dollars a week that they can put into it. Insurance is something that should be your birthright, right? The minute you're born, you should be allowed to have some form of insurance that if you get sick, if you, I mean, we are pretty amazing in New Zealand, like in the sense that we've got Pharmac that subsidizes, you know, really expensive treatments. And if you hurt yourself or you get sick and it's not like America where when I was living in Boulder and we used to go skiing, Julia, like, and a guy would break his ankle, like uh -oh. they wouldn't go to the hospital. <laughs> yeah. They would just stint their own. There were so many guys I'd meet that had like crooked wrists. Oh yeah. I'm a snowboarder. Like what? He's like, oh, I've broken my wrist four times. I'm like, well, why is it crooked? He's like, oh, I just never went to the hospital. Can't pay for it. You know, I won't be able to afford my lift tickets or whatever. You know, it's like yeah. that mentality of this, like, winner takes all, dog eat dog. Like, I think COVID and what we're going through right now, it's, it'll exacerbate it in the short term. But in the long term, it will suddenly be like, 
I wouldn't be surprised if the, your step up and save lives after everything gets cleared and we're in the clear again, whatever reality that will look like, you'll have the largest donation drive ever in the history of the country, purely because people want to help. I think this is the situation right now. It's like everyone feels helpless. Everyone wants to help. I think that's what it is at the mm. moment. It's bringing out this real compassion within us and going like, what really mean, what, what, what is the essence? Like, why are we even here? Like, what is the point? Is it money? Is it, cause I mean, how good is money when you're locked, <laughs> locked into your house? Like you don't, can't do anything with it. Right. So you're, I think seeing a massive shift and I'm already seeing that in friends of mine, just from what they're posting on social media, like, well-off friends who are lawyers and got their own companies and stuff. I'm seeing a shift in the stuff that they're posting. Like it's not this sort of superficial cars and going out to fancy restaurants anymore. There is some consciousness shift happening and it's slowly and it sucks that it has to be like this, but I think there's a net positive gain, you know, like the number of native birds in Wellington has suddenly, I read that today on stuff like, has shot through the roof like exponentially, Kereru, Tui, all coming back. And and that is a direct repercussion of the fact we're not driving, we're not interacting technologically with this nature anymore. Like we're not flying as many planes, we're not doing it. And then why should we be flying so many planes? Like this is the other thing. Why the hell do people have to fly to business meetings? Like when I worked for this pharmaceutical giant, largest pharmaceutical company in the world, I used to have to fly to like Singapore, Bangkok, Hong Kong to attend these like, like frankly, quite bullshit seminars where people just go to get drunk and a bunch of doctors get together to hang out. And it's just like a chance to get out of the house. But like we're flying there, like burning all this petrol. Yeah. yeah. yeah to something that we could do virtually. We could go on a conference. And that's the other thing that, you know, how zoom and, you know, most of our, you like you say how weird it is, that we're not looking at each other in this. But I actually kind of like that. I, for me, um, I've always find like the traditional podcast is always been just listening to each other and hearing and the looking at each other's just, it puts too much pressure, <laughs> especially like, you know, like what am I going to wear? Do I have to put makeup on? Like for everyone, yeah, you know, yeah. constant, like, so it's redefined the way we work as well. And this whole getting putting out ma putting on masks to represent ourselves in society like it's changing and i think it's going to be positive it's going to be a bit shit for a while but until we it's like the smack in the bottom we're getting collectively as <laughs> you know like we're little children i've always said adults are just children with money you know there's no difference like you're still the same person you were when you were 16 years old right wow. it's not yes. nothing has changed and obviously your your story is a little bit different because you didn't you've experienced like the hardcore like the police profession is a real working class profession right it's a real that's one of the few real jobs that are out there in the world like you know medic doctor is another one and a nurse and teacher policeman you know like you've actually we should, shouldn't say policeman like i've always been like i should be like police person what do you say what is the <laughs> police right officer. police officer exactly but is then everyone the officer or there's a constable yeah 
yeah, so that's uh, the yeah, other thing. Police, I guess like police person. Police person yeah. or police. I just say I was in the police or I worked for the police. Or, yeah. But, yeah, it's <laughs> interesting. Like people are just redefining what success is and I've it's been quite uh, intriguing watching from the outside. Like what is what is their definition now of what, what success truly means, you know? Yeah. Um, and how they celebrate it, you know? So... So how could you summarize that for you? How what does the success look like for Julia Vari now? That's a hard one. You could bypass the question if you want to. No, I won't bypass it. I've answered that before, and I and I you think did. about it. I think about it often actually because it kind of defines it's the the main thing that structures my day every every day is to making every day feel successful to me. So. Um, Obviously, health for me is like number one. So I'm feeling yeah. good and happy and joyful. But to feel that way, I need to know that my I do everything really for leaving a, a wicked stamp and legacy behind, a constructive and positive one. So yeah. that that's definitely success. And being there for my kids and being a really good role model. So showing them what it is like to be a positive, constructive member of society. Um, yeah. And, and also as well in tuning into themselves. Uh, my, my daughter le- learned a very good lesson when she was about five. <laughs> <laughs> and I absolutely love it because I refer back to it and I t- tell her about, you know, like, remember this time that you did that? And, and she's like, yes, mom. So <laughs> her and her little friend Molly at school. Yeah, great name. Uh, that I know. They, they, they managed to get hold of a vivid that was in their teachers and it was like lunchtime I think and Molly and her older brother Mac had had like a fight over something so Molly was steaming and my daughter wanting to have her friends back decided that they were going to retaliate and they tagged all over the new playground with a vivid pen <laughs> at five. This, is at five this brand new gorgeous timber wooden playground um oh I hate goodness. I hate Mac all over the playground. <laughs> oh my gosh. And and I was like, oh my goodness. And I got a phone call from one of the teachers going, Oh, something's happened. You're gonna need to come in after school. And I went, Oh, okay. And uh went in there and they told us what happened and Isla had tagged all over the playground with I hate Mac, you know, and oh it was a bit offensive. And I thought, <laughs> shit, this is actually pretty funny. And that they had to go out there and get some sandpaper and try and sand back the vivid permanent marker all over this beautiful wood playground. And anyway, in the car on the way home, I was like, what have you learned? You know, like, why did you do it, Isla? And she she was like, well, you know, I wanted to have my, you know, like Molly was so angry and I was, you know, like I just was doing kind of what Molly, you know, she was on the on the vibe of what Molly yeah. was doing, right? She was she was feeding into the vibe of molly's anguish and she wanted to support her friend and the key message that she said was um my head was saying yes mummy yes mummy do it do it do it but my heart was saying no mummy no mummy <laughs> so it's like, amazing like as a five-year-old that she was able to feel make what the distinction felt, yeah what was what felt good and what what that and what didn't you know like even though your mind might be saying yeah you're fucked off and you're angry and you should yeah. absolutely like go after this troll or whatever but then you know her heart really she should have listened to herself and 
I did an interview early today where the the key message was is that if it doesn't feel good, it probably isn't. And if nice. it does feel good, it probably is good. So yeah. I think we really need to start actually listening to ourselves of what we need and, you know, that self-reflection of being like, I really need to like tune out all of the other noise and listen to what, what, what my body is actually telling me. Yeah. And usually it's spot on and it can be really eerie fairy and out there, but I think we actually deep down know it's just the intuition. Yeah. yeah. And so, so heartening to know that the next generation are coming up knowing that, that your daughter at the age five can make the distinction that there will be multiple voices in her making her think, think differently about different scenarios. Well, they teach it in school. They call it the head hassler. What? And, yeah. we never had, I never caught that we, in school. I, I know. And I was like, damn it. I wish the I head knew. hustler. Yeah, Brilliant. I, I wish I knew about him years ago. Or her. It. Person. Yeah, it. person. <laughs> and, and, and how much it wreaks havoc. And, you know, we, we were training for their cross country because I mean, it might be a bit nerdy, like going out and training for a seven and eight year, nine year olds cross country event. But I wanted them to have, <laughs> to go in there confident, knowing that they'd done a couple of runs, yeah, you know, and that they could do it instead of going, oh, um, I, I hate running. You know, I hate running personally, but um, yeah, our the big, worst. Our, our big thing was focusing on the head hassler and how it would come into play while you were running. Yeah, you're tired. You should stop. You're never going to do well. You should walk. You've got the stitch. See, stop. You're out of breath. You're tired. Slow down. And so we preempted that the head hassler was going to do that. And even just honing in on that, I was like, it's not you. It's your brain. Yeah. Don't let your brain control your output. So I want you guys to focus in on the head hassler and show that his hassler who's boss is that you are just going to continue on without listening it listening to it brilliant so all of those negative feelings i want you to transfer into something positive and take control and actually start telling your brain that actually no you have got this and it was such yeah. a cool exercise to go through and i was like damn it i wish i had yeah self-awareness from such a young age it's so beautiful well hey we we had to get through all of this to be able to give birth to the next generation who then will sort everything out i think um, and speaking of like the head and the heart like the indigenous australians they believe that there's three brains in the body and that the way that we listen to them defines how we operate as a culture so we've traditionally only think of this one brain which sits in our head but the indigenous australians say that it's your brain in your head the brain in your heart and the brain in your gut mm. and you should dictate all of your thoughts your activities your decisions should come from the brain in your gut go through the brain in your heart and end up telling your brain in your head what to do and they say the reason there's so much anxiety in the western world is that we do the exact opposite we let our brain make the decision to tell our heart how to feel to tell our stomach to get anxious right and it's that switching i think that together with being self-aware is something that yeah, if we can get, if that is something that we learn through COVID and being in a constant state of anxiety, like part of me is like, I'm also super introverted. Like I don't really like 
like having a conversation with you is fine. Like I love that because the impetus is on you to talk, right? I just ask questions and every now and then I'll go on a tangent, but like I don't actually enjoy really hanging out with people at parties or like it's like small talk scares me. And so I really enjoyed lockdown. Like part of me is like, oh, this is amazing. No one's going to turn up. I don't have any commitments. I don't, I can just write and do my reading and like, um, and then everyone getting anxiety and all of that stuff. I was like, well, finally, everyone's finding out how it's like to be me. <laughs> like, yeah. it's such a selfish thing, but I'm like, everyone has to now learn to be at home, be with themselves. Like, like I've always said that, like, you've got to be comfortable being alone and being on your own. Like, if you can do that, you'll be so much happier if you ever end up being in a relationship, right? Oh Someone, my gosh. And yeah. I'm so like, I, cause I'm see, I am secretly, I'm exactly the same as you secretly yeah. love being by my own on my own and yeah. so happy. And sometimes I can be like, ha ha, ah, Julia, you're so funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're laughing at your own jokes. And, uh, yeah. That's perfect. I enjoy being around myself, you know? It's, yeah. Um, and Mark Twain said, if friend, exactly mark twain said if you don't if you're if you don't like being alone you're in bad company yeah <laughs> so it's kind of like all righty so julia i'm gonna wrap this up now thank you super duper much for agreeing to do this and i was gonna ask if sometime in the next year we could have you if i could have you back on just to discuss i think we've got more things to talk about oh man so many and so yeah? much will change so much will change in the next 12 months it's Exciting. exactly so we can do a, now we've got a time capsule snapshot of how we feel now and then we'll see what happens in the future yeah. and I'll, i'm going to link to all your stuff in the bio and yeah kudos to you you obviously earned this community hero award the kiwi bank new zealander of the year for a reason like such a treat talking to you and how positive you are and Thank yeah, you. thanks. Thanks for letting me live vicariously as a policeman, which is the most <laughs> scariest job I could ever have. So have a lovely day and say thanks to your partner for letting you have this time right, and to your kids and tell her to keep tagging. Look yeah. at Banksy. Look what ended up with Banksy. Maybe more positive messages. Yeah, yeah. yeah awesome. All right. Cool. Nice and Julia. Thank you. Thank have you a great bye. day. Bye. bye. Yeah, wow. Thanks for sticking around for a full two hours and six minutes. As I warned in the intro, it was going to be quite long, but I think you'll join me in agreeing that, yeah, time well spent, eh? Way more entertaining than a Hollywood movie, I'd say, talking to Julia. There's still so many things we want to cover. We wrote to each other after the podcast and we're like, yep, there's a lot of stories still left, so we're definitely going to have her back on again. And yeah, kudos to you guys for sticking around that's awesome and um so i've got a bunch of very very cool podcasts lined up um hopefully fingers crossed in the next next couple of days i'll be able to interview an author in new york who's about to release an amazing Substack, and she's coming up with an alias she doesn't want to be named publicly so i'm waiting for her to come through with that alias and then i've got the brilliant holly ransom from australia 
Holly, who's interviewed Barack Obama, Condoleezza Rice, Richard Branson nominated her for some amazing entrepreneurial award. Holly's just brought out a book with Penguin Random House as well. And yeah, so there'll be a lot to talk about there. And I've also got a really cool um, podcast lined up all about true life ghost stories. For those of you that know me know that I have a bit of a penchant for ghost stories. And yeah, so there'll be a venture into the paranormal, a whole two hours dedicated to that. So there's that to look forward to. Um, yeah, again, thanks for sticking around. Super awesome, you guys. And yeah, if you feel up to it, check out my Patreon or subscribe to my Substack. Or even if you just feel generous, you can send a one-off donation to my PayPal at chrisvonroy at gmail.com. Anything is much appreciated because it can help me get new equipment and make this all sound a little bit more professional. But yeah, thanks for hanging around, guys. Much love. Kia ora, kapai, maori ora.